Now, when Qatar won the, the hosting rights to the FIFA World Cup, it's back in 2010, the promise was that the event would go down as, as a milestone in, in the history of the Middle East and, and a milestone for soccer's governing body, FIFA. Well, the, the cup, it's off and running, you, you may have noticed, but that question hangs. Will Qatar 22 uh, go down in history as the kind of milestone intended? Now, this is the first time that the World Cup has been held in a Muslim country or in the Middle East, which are potential positives. But so far, Qatar 2022 was kicked a a series of own goals, allegations of widespread corruption surrounding the actual bid to host the Cup. Human rights groups have exposed the the Gulf Kingdom's appalling treatment of migrant workers, and there there were many deaths building the stadiums and the infrastructure for this event. Qatar's also been called out for its persecution of the LGBTQI plus community and its treatment of women. So that's complex. And, and this World Cup, well, has the potential for to be another ugly co-mingling of, of sport and politics. Our guest is football historian David Goldblatt. He says that this World Cup to quote him, has already exceeded its predecessors in cost and controversy. Uh, David is a British sports writer, journalist and academic. Uh, His work has appeared everywhere, Observer, TLS, New Statesman, a career highlight, no doubt, appearing on this program in August 2021, discussing the the troubled history of the Olympics. He's the author of several award-winning books, including The Age of Football, and the ball is round, a global history of football. He's a visiting professor at Pizza College, Los Angeles, from whence he joins us now. David, welcome. Well, thank you very much for having me. One of the things that astounds me about the World Cup, and I guess it's perhaps not so astounding, given that, that, that codified sport is only a, an invention of the 19th century, but this event itself only goes back to 1930 in, in Uruguay. Yeah, I mean, we're coming up for 100 years. That's quite a long time, I would say. It's a good chunk of modernity, that's for sure. <laughs> yes, indeed. Can we draw any parallels over, over that 100 years from Uruguay to Qatar? I mean, what has changed in this event? Well, some things have not changed. I mean, in 1930, we had a small country invisible to much of the world of less than 3 million people who chose to fund and stage the World Cup as a way of announcing both their footballing arrival, but also 100 years of their constitution and the economic and social successes of Uruguay in the uh, first part of the 20th century when the economy was booming and it built the first kind of Latin American welfare state. And here we are nearly 100 years later and a small country of less than 3 million people that nobody knew anything about is letting the rest of the world know by putting on the World Cup. It's the scale. Has that been... The global reach is different. But in some ways, nothing changes. Well, that scale of global reach is, I would imagine, vastly transformed in the the technological moment in which we now live. Has that been a feature of successive cups that they're... They're gestures of national identity and national presence. You know, there is more than one thing going on any one world, any World Cup. On the one hand, there is um, the message and the narrative that the hosts wish to generate and put out, and sometimes that's contested. And then there are the individual national stories that thread their way through 
uh, a World Cup competition. And then there are genuinely cosmopolitan moments as well. You know, when the whole world falls in love with Pelé in 1958 and discovers Brazil, there are moments of sort of complex global community generated. So all of those things are going on at, at the World Cup. And I think one of the interesting things about this World Cup is never have so many people and so many organisations sought to shape and frame and contextualise those narratives, pursuing, you know, a political agenda, both hosts, FIFA, um, competing nations, and an array of NGOs and activist groups around the world. I mean, that's, uh, again, a symptom of our moment, is it not? I mean, everybody will have an agenda around an event like this. It can't simply be taken as, a, as an exhibition of football. Never was. It never was. It's a complete illusion that that ever pertained. There has never, ever been any sport without politics and certainly not at the level of um, global mega events. They are all to their very marrow political uh, events, albeit with a small p. What's interesting about the last 25 years, I would say, is that while states politicians, um, political parties have hitherto monopolised um, that political power and that political messaging. The rest of the world has woken up. And that doesn't seem to me to be an entirely bad thing. On the contrary, mm. it seems very healthy. And, and yet these events can always be taken at a superficial level. You you can always just watch them for the, the progress of your favoured team. You I mean, you, yes, must subliminally take in some of the messaging, but nonetheless, they, you can just see them as sport. Well, you can see them as sport, but all sorts of stuff is going on behind behind our backs. And I think in, in the case of this World Cup, it's clear that different parts of the world are experiencing it and interpreting it differently because of the media context in which it's being presented. So, you know, much of Northern Europe there's a slight queasiness and uneasiness mm. about the whole affair. Almost nobody is able to view the um, the tournament without some understanding and connection to issues of migrant rights or LGBTQ rights. On the other hand, in the Arab world, if you read, you know, the Arabic-speaking press and check in with the um, Arabic Twitter, people are thinking this is the best World Cup ever. This is fantastic. This is so good. This is in the Middle East. And it's good to stuff it to the West too. Go on, Gianni Infantino. <laughs> I mean, Qatar is an extraordinary place of, of immense wealth uh, and yet relative obscurity. It's such an interesting combination. And you can see the appeal of an, an event like this to, to make their stamp globally. I mean, it's not just to make their stamp. I mean, it's sort of more... <clears throat> More substantial than that, this is about state survival and security. I mean, here you are, albeit with all of this money and liquid natural gas, but you're a tiny state with only 300,000 citizens mm. next to Saudi Arabia, which has never quite reconciled itself to your independence. The UAE is no friend across the water. Iran and Iraq are at the top of the Gulf. This is an unstable, dangerous place. So visibility, making yourself known, make, giving yourself a presence in every global forum, that is really powerful politics for the Qataris. And that's what the World Cup and its entire investment in global sport, of which, you know, the World Cup is just like the pinnacle, um, has always been about. 
but even locally, that investment is extraordinary. I mean, there are a conservative estimate that Qatari government has spent about two hundred and fifty billion since getting the tournament in twenty ten. I mean, that's a staggering sum. It is staggering, but they have built. My, have they built a lot? I mean, that includes, you know, a pharaonic new international airport, a complete refit of the old international airport because they didn't have enough capacity, a complete rebuilding of a deep water port, the provision of three absolutely state-of-the-art metro lines across Doha, 50 hotels, an entire <laughs> refit of the country's freeway networks. I could go on. I mean, Lusail Iconic Stadium, where the final will be held, is itself, you know, a billion and a half bucks. But it's surrounded by a new satellite city on the edge of Doha called Lusail that will eventually uh, house 250,000 people and is coming in at an infrastructural cost of, you know, more than 50 billion just for that alone. So they have built a lot and they were probably going to build most of it anyway. But the World Cup has given focus and direction and energy and speed to the process. It is gobsmacking. When you look at it, your 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 chin hits the floor and thinks, how did this happen? And I also think how complicit we in the global north are with it. I didn't mm. think it alien. I thought this is part of me and part of us, you know, because who's buying all the liquid natural gas? Who's occupying the main airbase in uh, Qatar? You know, the US, the UK, and I believe at times the Australian Air Force as well during the various Gulf conflicts. So it's like Qatar is often its critics or the view can be that this is something completely separate from us, you know, whether we like it or not. And actually, we are deeply implicated and connected to it. And this extraordinary development that you described there, this is largely constructed by a, a migrant workforce, a, a very vulnerable group of people. Yeah, I mean, up to, you know, almost a million migrant workers, you know, overwhelmingly men from uh, South Asia, Bhutan, Nepal, India, Sri Lanka, etc., um, who have laboured, you know, in extraordinary heat and poor conditions. And for um, until 2020, under the old kafala system, which was a highly personalised, super unequal um, form of migration and labour control in which, you know, you arrive, you have to give up your passport, you regularly didn't get the wages you were promised, you're probably in debt to illegal agents who got you there in the first place. And the level of both deaths over which there is controversy over precise numbers, but mm. also life-changing injuries um, which have not been compensated, is very, very substantial. That point you make of, of places like Qatar being, it's a, sort of a dream state extension of the global north. I mean, that was even taken up by Gianni Infantino, the, the, the head of FIFA. I mean, he, in, in responding to some of the criticism around this cup, he says, but Europe is complicit. Europe is a colonial power. Europe has done terrible things. There's almost an acknowledgement of the circularity here. Well, I think, you know, he's also, he lives in Doha, spending a lot of time hearing those kinds of arguments. I mean, in the Global North, we don't like to hear those arguments. Um, and it was an odd moment, perhaps, in which to articulate them. But there is a lot of truth in it. 
And this is interesting. You know, this is a debate going on across international politics and international institutions where the global north has assumed that its discourse of universal human rights and uh, liberal democracy is a kind of global, a global and uncontested good. Mm. And what we're seeing here is backlash to that and an argument between increasingly powerful and assertive states in the global south who are just not, you know, whose elites are not buying into that. But well, the assumption on, on the part of many in the north would be that events like uh, the World Cup are, are an agent uh, for that sort of social progressivism, but that's that's part of the agenda in, in, in holding these events. It's interesting. I mean, I agree, but it's a very recent um, notion. Mm. I mean, you know, even like go back to Italian 90 or, you know, the US World Cup 1994, nobody really thinks the greater good of the planet's being served. I mean, people are loving the football. <laughs> and sure, there are marketing considerations and there are money and there are kind of micro politics going on. But the idea that, you know, football's a force for good is a much weaker, thinner notion. And it's only in the last, as I say, as the degree of politicization amongst you know states and oligarchs has grown in football so that has opened up the space for social movements and progressive activists within the game to say oh okay actually football's an instrument for gender equality the world cup is an anti-racist opportunity etc so they've both kind of increased in parallel you know they're both of those things and there's a fight going on as to what actually is gonna you know who gets to say and what does it actually mean in the end and, and the players are on one side of that fight, uh, which is an interesting development because without them, uh, there would be no World Cup. Yeah, the players, it's an interesting moment. I mean, players are divided. Again, you know, those in the global north, the squads of Australia or the Netherlands or Denmark or uh, England and Germany are very active and vocal supporters of, you know, for example, the LGBT armbands, though they've uh, not uh, been able to wear them because of uh, FIFA's intervention. But, you know, silence from a lot of other squads. I mean, with no disrespect to Senegal or Cameroon, you know, you're really not hearing any concern about the LGBT community. So I think players are not a mass, you know, they're not one thing in this. I mean, it's an interesting moment. Play, it's you know there is more player, and as we know, athlete activism in general mm. Mm. over the last four or five years. A new generation of athletes aware of their abilities, slightly more autonomous from uh, the structures of sporting control. You know, better educated, often fluent in social media, who are kind of yeah engaging in that. So we may see more. I'm interested. You know, that will be one of the features. You know, for the connoisseurs how players play that over the next month. I mean, one of the, one of the, the terms bandied around uh, around events like this, like this World Cup, is, is sports washing. And this is mm -hmm. where we see, I mean, and, and this is this is part of that, that parallel process that you've described, uh, of, you know, using sport to to convey a message, to perhaps clean up uh, a country's sure. image. And that's not a new thing. I mean, it's be careful what you wish for, though. I mean, the Qataris are definitely, you know, 10 years ago, how many Australians honestly knew that Qatar existed, let alone where it was, let alone having an opinion on its authoritarian politics? Mm. I would say close to 0.01%, maybe. And today, 
I don't know, but I bet it's a very, very much more than that. So, be, you know, that's you can try and sports wash, but actually it's a much more complex picture for Qatar. There have been an opportunities to, and in many parts of the world, improve its image, establish a presence, send a message. But in other parts of the world, it's actually probably overall negative, the consequences. It's not washing. Things have got dirtier. It's been tried before, of course. I'm thinking of the 1936 Olympics. The Germans, I mean, again, as often in these situations, they were sort of torn. On the one hand, you know, they were it, the Berlin Olympics were an opportunity to say, look how nice and normal and Pacific and not invading you kind of people we are here in <laughs> Germany with our wonderful festival of sport. And at the same time, every last bit of its kind of iconography and messaging was saying, we are the master race. Watch out, we're coming. Um, so, you know, you can you can end up sending more than one message as a host and they can be contradictory to each other. <laughs> one of the things which there might be, you know, a lot of this is is in, in the realm of ideas and influence. But something that will be quite concrete will be the uh, the possibility that this could be a, a sustainable carbon neutral World Cup. That, that, that perhaps is a measurable outcome. But I wonder how that will how that will sit when we have potentially one of the least sustainable countries in the world in Qatar? Um, I mean, again, it's a mixed message. On the one hand, isn't it great that we're having this conversation about what is this carbon neutral World Cup? You know, we've never had that conversation before, although risibly the Russians claimed that 2018 was a carbon neutral affair. So, it's really good that environmental policy and a commitment to carbon zero is at the heart of the claims being made by the Qataris. And again, to give them their due, there has been considerable investment in solar power, recycling, uh, sensible waste management, um, a certain amount of tree planting, etc., and a commitment to offset the carbon emissions of the tournament as a whole. Um, so that's all good. But of course... With that then comes scrutiny, and we find, you know, certain, quite a few folks have looked at the numbers and said, you're really underestimating the style of the carbon emissions, much bigger, you know, particularly in the construction zone um, than you've been claiming. And the offsets, you know, investing in renewable energy programs or in reforestation projects are deeply problematic. You know, lots of this isn't just Qatar. This is like every major multinational corporation in the world that is claiming carbon zero operations. Mm. Is they're investing in offset programs that are really dubious, renewable energy programs that would happen anyway. So you're not increasing the overall stock of renewable energy and thereby reducing carbon emissions or investing in dodgy reforestation programs that really don't go anywhere. And in any case, all the carbon gets sequestered in 30 years. And we really, really need to deal with emissions right now. So it's a kind of six out of 10 for Qatar. Like, you know, they're on the right road. These are the right things to be considering. Every sports event everywhere of any kind needs to be doing this. But are they actually there? No. And I guess that, you know, the ultimate point would be that the, the, the ultimate sustainable event is not to hold these global events in which vast things have to be constructed and people need to be flown from around the planet. That would be the ultimate sustainable gesture. 
Well, you know, that's a question we're going to have to ask ourselves, you know, not very far down the road. Mm. I mean, there are models of hosting global sporting events where you have many fewer spectators from overseas and overwhelmingly the crowd is local. That would remember, you know, over 70% of the um, uh, carbon emissions from this World Cup are from spectator travel. So, you know, you could cut emissions enormously. You know, you could stage events without building new stadiums. It's not actually impossible to do so so there are models that are significantly lower in their carbon emissions but hey you know the way things are we may well be asking ourselves in a decade or so do we really want to expand the last of our precious carbon budgets you know on sending pole vaulters around the world and that, no disrespect <laughs> pole vaulting i love it but that's like where we may be <laughs> well david in the lead up to events like this before the actual competition starts, you know, the, the other agenda, and we've discussed so much of it, of, of things like human rights, of uh, LGBTQI plus rights take primacy, yet once the sport begins, another conversation starts. What do you think will be the balance in retrospect of this World Cup 2022? I think this World Cup will be the least successful in, in making those things go away. I think they're just going to go on and on, certainly in Scandinavia, uh, England, Germany, France. I can't speak for the rest of the world, but certainly in those countries, I think it actually will carry on. And it's not just, remember, you know, the Qataris' record as hosts that's being debated or being politicised at this World Cup. Mm. You know, look at the scale of protests going on around the Iranian national team in support of protests back home, where you've got the team refusing to sing the national anthem on global television. I mean, an extraordinarily brave and incredibly powerful political statement at some cost, I suspect, to them and their families. You know, and the crowd was full of uh, anti-regime uh, slogans, you know, women, life, liberty. I thought that was amazing. Three folk uh, in matching red T-shirts had that slogan, you know, one word on each shirt, and they went in separately, but then inside the stadium, you know, then they mm. stood next to each other, and suddenly you've got a banner. And there will be more of that, you know, and not just from Iran. So I think the world of football has become too political now. There are too many other things riding on it. I mean, in Brazil, you know, Lula is tweeting that he's going to take back the shirt and the left should wear the shirt after the Bolsonarists try to claim it for themselves and he'll be wearing the number 13. And, you know, it just goes on and on and on. So I think it's not going to disappear. And as ever, the debate is, for me, is like, you can't get politics out of it. It's like, what kind of politics do you want and how are you going to conduct yourself are the questions. A question for our time. David, thank you so much. Thank you. David Goldblatt is a, a British journalist, author and a visiting professor at Pitzer College, Los Angeles. Look for his books, uh, including The Ball is Round and The Age of Football, The Global Game in the 21st Century. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.